This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me, as he always does, is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. Sam and I are continuing in our series, Desiring the Kingdom. And today we come to 1 Kings chapter 22 and 2 Kings chapter 1. So a lot of territory to cover. We're going to have to going to kind of hit it in, in big stripes for chapter 22 and then maybe take a little bit more time uh, in the start of 2 Kings. But we're coming to the end of our friend Ahab. And I use that term very loosely. Uh, <laughs> Ahab has certainly been no friend of mine anyways, and I don't think that there's anybody out there that's cheering for uh, for Ahab. Um, but uh, Sam, can we give people just a general recap here of the last uh, two chapters as coming into chapter 22, the things that we've seen Ahab doing here? Yeah, so we've talked about this before that in First Kings chapter 17 through 19 is kind of focusing in on Elijah the prophet. And Elijah has come and he's confronted this king named Ahab and his queen Jezebel who've turned the whole nation of Israel away from Yahweh and they are promoting them to start worshiping Baal and Asherah, these pagan gods. They're bringing all sorts of wickedness uh, to the kingdom. And so Elijah has been sent by God to Ahab and Jezebel. So in chapter 20, we get the first of three chapters that talk about Ahab's wickedness. So if it spent three chapters from 17 to 19 looking at Elijah, 20 to 22 really zeroes in on Ahab. And you get three different stories with three different prophets um, revealing different parts of just how wicked Ahab is. And so let's go back and kind of like race through this. Uh, chapter 20 starts with the king of Syria, and he comes against Israel, and he says, hey, I'm taking your wives, I'm taking your children, I'm taking your silver and your gold uh, to Ahab, and Ahab says, uh, okay, <laughs> sure, you can have them. Uh, please just don't hurt me is kind of the idea, and, and he's, yeah, they come back and say, wow, he, he folded really easily there. Well, we'll take even more. And and Ahab is basically like, I'll give away everything so long as I can be preserved. But the messengers of Israel, the elders, uh, come along and say, no, 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 you can't do this. And so in spite of the fact that Ahab is utterly wicked and has proven himself to be utterly wicked prior to this, God actually comes and is going to defend Israel. He yeah. gives Ahab and Israel a victory over the Syrians. And he has declared, like, the Syrians are coming for you. You need to defeat them definitively. And instead, Ahab is, has such an affinity for the pagan culture of the Syrians, and he, like, wants to win their approval that at the expense of his own people, he looks at this king who is trying to take the wives and children of Israel, and he's like, oh, my brother. And the king, who is totally putting it on, knows that he's defeated – has no intention of holding his word, says to Ahab, oh, I'm going to give you back all the cities I've conquered if you just let me and my army go back home, and and, and I'm, I'm going to let you build you know, commerce and industry in my hometown, and we're going to be the best of friends. And Ahab disobeys God to chase after this guy Ben-Hadad, 
And a prophet comes along who is without name, but he says to Ahab, like, this is going to cost you your life. Because you've done this, this is going to cost you your life. He says, your life shall be for his life and your people for his people. So the prophet is saying, because you've done this, you've chosen Syria over Israel, and that's going to be the consequence. So then in chapter 21, Ahab shows, okay, he's willing to sell out the nation to chase after these you know, pagan cultures of the foreigners. Now this time, um, he has a vineyard that he wants that's right next door. And he goes and tries to make a deal for it. And Naboth, this really righteous guy, says, you know what? The word of God keeps me from doing this, so I can't do it. So Ahab goes home to Jezebel and pouts on the bed and says, he won't make a deal with me. You know, like he's the five-year-old we've talked about. And so Jezebel's like, you're the, you're the king. Just take it. And she sends a messages to the elders of Israel, the leaders of Israel, and says, I want you to scheme to have Naboth put to death. Nobody opposes. So you get an idea of how thoroughly corrupt Israel is. No leaders are standing up for righteousness. So Naboth gets killed. The vineyard's handed over to Ahab, and he's like, oh, yay, I my vineyard. And like, <laughs> like he's just totally self-absorbed. And now Elijah shows up, so prophet number two, to declare judgment. And he goes before him and he says, I'm going to bring disaster upon you. I'm going to cut off your children, like your sons, your your days of your family being on the throne are done. But Ahab, like he models repentance. Oh, I'm so sorry. And so God says, you know what, I'm going to delay this judgment. Then you get to the third chapter of Ahab's life and now you're going to meet a third prophet and a third example of Ahab's wickedness. And at the end of this chapter, God's mercy and patience for Ahab's wickedness finally comes to an end. And that does bring us to chapter 22, and the first 12 verses of chapter 22 sort of contain the first scenario. And you mentioned the war that he had with Ben-Hadad mm-hmm. and that kind of deal that they had cut at the end of it. Obviously, Syria didn't live up to that. So Correct. it basically tells us that there's this area, Ramoth-Gilead, which should have been returned to Israel, was mm-hmm. not. And so Ahab wants to get it back, and this time he involves the king of Judah, Jehoshaphat, who's come mm-hmm. up to, to visit with them. And Jehoshaphat, who's otherwise a good king, Sam, was I, I think generally was a good king. His main character flaw, if he has one, is that he had a soft spot for Israel and for Ahab, and he really, I think, wanted to see the kingdoms you know, joined back together again. He was looking for a way mm-hmm. to heal the civil war, so to speak. Yeah. He's facing a problem that has plagued the church for as long as it's been around, and that is at what point can you sacrifice truth for the sake of unity? You know, how far can you go to build bridges with somebody who is standing on the opposite side of truth from you? And Jehoshaphat, now Israel has fully gone into evil. They're worshiping pagan gods, and Jehoshaphat wants to see the kingdom restored, right? So he's he's trying to make inroads with Israel, which is the ten tribes of the north, that kingdom. And he's trying, but he's trying to merge with a king and a kingdom that is utterly opposed to the Lord and has no interest in pursuing what Jeho- Jehoshaphat hopes that they will, which yeah. is to turn back to the Lord. And so Ahab pitches him on the idea, let's go up and take Ramoth Gilead. Mm-hmm. And Jehoshaphat says, okay, but first let's inquire for the word of the Lord. And Ahab yeah. says, I was prepared for just such an eventuality. No problem. <laughs> and he trots out his 400 pet prophets who – my pet theory on this, by the way, mm-hmm. um, in the story, well, uh, I guess go back to uh, First Kings, is it 
uh, Eight, nine, 18. 18, 18, where they have the showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Um, we're told that there were 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah. And then it's the text tells us that the 400 and that the prophets of Baal, and then later it uses the number 450 for the number that uh, Elijah slay, you know, killed mm-hmm. after the contest. So my pet theory is that those 400 prophets of Asherah became like, uh, Whistling off in the corner. Yeah, they became like (laughs) Ahab's pet prophets that anytime he needed that sort of Greek chorus, sort of drag them out and they're going to (laughs) sing, yes, the Lord will bless you. Okay, great. We're going to go and do that now. So he brings these guys out, and whether they're the same or not, I just imagine that. I think that's a curious coincidence, if not. It's a curious number, and there's an interesting thing here because Jehoshaphat says, let's inquire for the word of the Lord, and he says Yahweh. Let's hear from Yahweh on this. And so he says to Ahab then says, okay, here's the prophets. And the prophets go, go up because the Lord, but they say Adonai. They don't tell Ahab that Yahweh is going to give him Mm -hmm. The battle. Yeah, Adonai um, is just a general term that means Lord. It yeah. could be a person, actually. Or it like could the be Baal. Lord of a man. It could be yeah. anybody, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So they tell him, the Lord, the master, is going to give it into your hands. And Jehoshaphat reacts oddly to that. He says, isn't there another prophet of the Lord Yahweh? He uses the covenant name of God that we can talk to. And Ahab's like, okay, fine. There's this guy, Micaiah, but I don't like him because he always says bad things about me and nothing good. And that is so classic. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. If I could – if I had a nickel for every time somebody in this – in public service in this country or just anybody judged the truth of something based on whether you were saying something good about them or not, Mm -hmm. I – I, you know, I'm like, that is so common. And so Ahab was like, yep, I hate this guy. He never says anything good about me, but – he sent for him. Meanwhile, and you pointed this out. Meanwhile, those prophets, whether they were false prophets or not, whether they were Asherah or not, there's one of them named Zedekiah that seems certainly to have some some knowledge, if nothing else, of the Hebrew scriptures and so forth. Because Zedekiah does some interesting things here with this. Um, it was like the horns of a bull mm-hmm. or something. What did yeah, he do so- with that? So in this in this statement, Zedekiah, whose name literally means you know Yahweh of my, is righteousness, right? Like so, it's a name that that is a covenant name. It yeah. sounds like he's you know he trusts in the righteousness of of Yahweh, the Lord. And it says he made for himself. He goes. He's putting on a show. It says he made for himself horns of iron and said, "Thus says the Lord: With these you shall push the Syrians until they are destroyed." And the idea is, you know, the horns have two pokes, so it's Israel and Judah working together. And he's like, "I guarantee victory. We're going to push the Syrians until they're destroyed." But what's interesting about this is he's actually pulling this not just out of thin air, but in Deuteronomy thirty-three. Uh, Verse 17, Moses is giving a blessing 600 years earlier. Moses is giving a blessing on the descendants of Joseph, and he says this, in majesty – and by the way, Joseph, uh, the descendants, the tribes of Manasseh and Ephraim, that's where Samaria is. Ephraim is the the seat of government for the northern kingdom. It's, It's where Ahab reigns. And so it says, in majesty, Joseph is like a firstborn bull. So there's that imagery again. His horns are the horns of a wild ox, and with them he will gore the nations, even those at the end of the earth. And so Zedekiah is saying, hey, in Deuteronomy 33, you know, Moses gives the promise in this blessing that we're going to be a military might, and we're going to, we're going to gore the nations, and so we're going to have victory, and I'm claiming this promise of Moses. 
but like so many false prophets that are really good at distorting and contorting the word of God, he selectively chooses what Moses is saying because right before that, in this sermon that Moses is giving, he says, until you turn away from me, the Lord says, man, I'm going to be with you and I'm going to bless you until that day. And so if you read right before this passage in Deuteronomy 31, starting at verse 16, listen to this because Moses also says this, Mr. Zedekiah. He says, you are going to rest with your ancestors, and these people will soon prostitute themselves to foreign gods of the land they're entering. Well, guess who does that? Yeah, Ahab. Ahab yeah. and all of his people. They give themselves to foreign gods, and it says, they will forsake me, they will break the covenant I made with them, and in that day, I will become angry with them and forsake them and hide my face from them, and they will be destroyed. Zedekiah fails to bring that passage. <laughs> he, did, he forgot that part of it. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so you have this really bold prophet who stands in and is not afraid of speaking the truth to power. Yeah, and that's Micaiah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Micaiah, the next section here, verses 13 to uh, 28, Micaiah shows up. And it's interesting because Micaiah was warned by the guy that went to fetch him that said, look, the other prophets have already told the king, thumbs up. So you tell the king, thumbs up too. Basically yeah. the old, if you know what's good for you, you'll go along here. <laughs> That's right. So, so Micaiah comes in and Ahab says, what are we going to do, Micaiah? And Micaiah's like, oh, yeah, go go up and, you know, yeah, just dripping with sarcasm. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Lord's going to give it to you. And Ahab then pulls himself up to his entire – I picture Ahab as this little short five-foot-one-inch guy you know, with a squeaky voice. Probably not true at all, but that's just my mental image of Ahab because he throws himself on his bed and he pouts like a five-year-old. I'm like, you must look <laughs> like a kid too. So he pulls himself up and he looks at him and says, how many times you know, do I have to tell you speak the truth to me? Yeah, well, every time he's, he does, you hate it. You know? <laughs> yeah, he is putting on a show for Jehoshaphat because here he's got a real prophet who's saying this is bad and or being sarcastic. Yeah. And he's trying to make Jehoshaphat like, oh, how many times do I plead with you for the truth of God? He's putting on a show for Jehoshaphat you yeah. know, so that he doesn't walk away. Yeah, because he needs Jehoshaphat's army or thinks right. he does anyways. Just deceptive to the bone, gross. So then Micaiah tells him the truth. And it's an interesting story because Micaiah then says, okay, here's what the word of the Lord is. And he describes these sheep without a shepherd and every man going to his own city mm-hmm. in his own tent, which is a, a prophecy of what's going to happen in this battle that's coming up. But then he also says, an interesting thing. He talks about a scene from heaven where the Lord was saying, look, hey, who is going to entice Ahab so that he can go and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And then says some discussion took place, and, and then one comes forward and says, I'll take care of it. And the Lord says, how are you going to do it? And he says, I'll be a lying spirit in the mouths of the prophets. They're going to tell him to go ahead and do this. And the Lord said, okay, you're going to entice him, and you're going to succeed. Go out and do it. And so Micaiah basically says to Ahab, look, the Lord is telling you, you know I'm speaking the word of the Lord, right? Obviously, he knows that about him. I'm telling you the word of the Lord is I made your prophets lie to you. I'm warning you. These prophets are lying to you. I've done it. This is your last red flag. You're warning the the gates, the bells are clanging, that kind of thing, and that he's going to put – that he's put a lying spirit in the mouth of your prophet. And then Zedekiah does an interesting thing. Zedekiah comes up and smacks Micaiah on the cheek and says mm-hmm. to him, how did the Spirit of the Lord go from me to speak to you? I guess sort of implying that, hey, I was, I was speaking for the Lord. Where, you know, where'd you come from? Mm-hmm. 
And Micaiah says, hey, behold, you shall see on that day when you go into an inner chamber to hide yourself. Another prophecy of doom, basically, in this case, on Zedekiah. Mm-hmm. And then an interesting exchange happens, Sam. The king of Israel, Ahab, says, seize Micaiah, take him back to Ammon, the governor of the city, and Joash, the king's son, and say, put this fellow in prison, feed him meager rations of bread and water until I come in peace. And Micaiah, and I just, I, I love this. Micaiah says, if you return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he then says, hear all you peoples. That is bold. It is very bold. Um, it also implies uh, and that what you think Micaiah was probably then already in custody, right? Like mm-hmm. yeah, they had to get him, him out back. of jail to bring him to Micaiah. Or yeah, to I mean, the, the king knows exactly where he's is, where he is. He's in the custody of, of this other guy, Amon. And he says, I want you to take him back to that prison. And so this is the way that authentic, righteous you know, people who were followers of Yahweh were treated. They were either killed or they were thrown in prison. And so one of the questions, this is Elijah's question, going all the way back to, to chapter 18, is, God, where are you? Why are you allowing this? I mean, you got to think there's lots of prophets' wives that are widows. There's lots of kids that are orphans who had faithful prophets as dads. This guy's in prison. Like And everybody's wondering, why is God not moving? Why is God not acting? Why is he showing mercy to Ahab? Why is he being patient with him? And that's a very a real question. And so we're going to see God respond. And finally, <laughs> the patience wears out. Next chapter, you'll see um, God's justice fall down on this kind of corruption. You know, it's interesting because um – that sort of thing, what you're saying there, that, that prophets didn't have a really good job security, life expectancy, retirement plan. Um, mm-hmm. When Calvin and Luther were were rebelling against the Roman Catholic Church, what was it, like six months was the average life expectancy yeah. of someone that graduated from Calvin's seminary? Uh, seminary? Yeah. yeah, six months. Just absolutely wild. And they, they went into it considering it and writing about it as though it was a privilege to do so. Yeah. Uh, so zealous for the faith, so desperately wanting people to know Jesus and his salvation that they gladly laid down their lives in really rough times. Yeah. You know, Jesus, it's interesting – this guy Zedekiah, who's who's coming, and he he's quoting scripture. And part of me wonders if he's entirely sincere, if he really believes that he's on the right side of this issue. Um, when he strikes Micaiah on the cheek and says, "You know, how did the spirit go from me to you?" It's interesting how that parallels in the Gospel of Matthew when you get to the Passion. One of the things that Jesus does to the religious leaders again and again is he'll, he'll accuse them and say, it's, it's your type, it's you guys that killed the prophets. He's looking at the religious people, not the pagans, not the crazy sinners that are out there who hate religion. It's the most religious people Jesus accused of killing the prophets. And so in the Passion narrative, there's this really th- interesting thing that kind of relates to what we just read, you know, about the spirit of deceit and all this stuff going into the prophets. Listen to this out of Matthew 26. It says, now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus. I mean, they're, they're, oh, they're denying the truth and actively seeking lies, which is exactly what Ahab's doing. You know, it's the, the Lord gives this message and then announces that he's put – so it's like he's totally telegraphed the deceit. So it makes yep. it not deceit at all. And yet 
Ahab is like, you've told me that's wrong. You've told me it's wrong. You've told me it's a lie, and yet I want it anyway because it's what I want to hear. And God brings judgment upon him. And so anyway, it says the chief priests and the whole council at Jesus' crucifixion, they're seeking false testimony. And when Jesus finally says, you know what? I am the Messiah. The high priest tears his robes and yells, he's uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? And you know what happens? Everybody shouts, he deserves death. And it says, and they spit in his face and struck him and slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? And so the same exchange that you see between Zedekiah, who is the one who emerges as the lead of the prophets of Ahab, does treats Micaiah in the very same manner in which the chief priests will treat Christ at his crucifixion. And it is the most zealously religious that are the most dangerous to the prophets and the most dangerous to Jesus. Mm. It's a warning to us. That, yeah, that's, in, that's an interesting parallel for sure. So then we have uh, the next section is verses 29 through 50, and they tell us what happens in the battle. Like we've already talked about, Ahab is sold out for this because he wanted to be told, go ahead, you're going to win. And that's the, that's the message that he got from the prophets who were lying to him. And off he goes to battle, but not without doing in the most Ahab way possible. He says to Jehoshaphat, I tell you what, I got this idea. I'm going to disguise myself, but you dress up like the king. <laughs> you, you, you wear all your normal robes, Jehoshaphat. But oh, I'm that's just gonna, a good deal. I'm going to wear this backwards baseball cap and some scuffies, and you know, I'm just. I don't want you to be like, you know, I'm just put this hoodie on, this sweatshirt. No one's going to recognize me. And so Jehoshaphat, <laughs> for reasons unknown, goes, "Okay, that sounds like a good idea." So off they go to battle, and uh, Ben Hadad had told his troops, "Look, don't start anything with the, don't fight the troops, don't fight, find the king of Israel." fight with him. So Ben-Hadad's troops are looking for Ahab, and they come across Jehoshaphat. They're about to kill Jehoshaphat because he's dressed like the king. (laughs) Jehoshaphat cries out. They realize, oh, no, that's not the king. He has far too deep and manly of a voice. It can't be Ahab. (laughs) And he's acting courageously. He's acting courageously. (laughs) You know, he's going to charge us here. So instead, they do an about face, and they're, you know, they're going somewhere else. And some guy, probably in frustration, fires an arrow into the air, just at random, boink, up up in the sky. And I believe myself, God steered the arrow mm-hmm. because that arrow came down and landed in a very specific place in the one joint in Ahab's armor where an arrow could get through and Ahab gets killed. Um, he, you know, the judgment of God literally falls from the sky on Ahab who was trying to hide uh, and pretend that he's not the king. Uh, so, so he dies. Mm-hmm. And they bring Ahab's body back to Samaria, and as they're washing the chariot, the dogs are licking the water, licking up the blood, basically, of Ahab from the chariot, which that was what Elijah told him was going to happen to him because of what he Mm -hmm. did to uh, Naboth. So that prophecy was fulfilled at that time. Um, Does it make you want to sigh now? It, you know, it, I, I, okay, I am, I, I certainly am glad that Ahab got what was coming to him because the bottom line is that Ahab was a wicked, wicked man and, mm-hmm. and that he did the worst possible thing, which is he led people to worship false gods. There's, there's, you know, there's no way he could have done more harm to Israel than what he did. Um, so I certainly wanted to see him get his own. But on the other hand, 
I have to admit, I really was hoping Elijah would call down fire from heaven or something. <laughs> he had that habit of doing that. And I was really wishing he would like call down fire from heaven or something and take Ahab out in a more dramatic way. But um, I will, you know what? I'll take what the Lord gives me here. Ahab got his, his justice. Yeah. Um, and it'll be Ahab's wickedness. One of the things, you know, the, the city that Ahab wanted to recapture that we talked about at the very beginning of this. Yeah, Ramoth Gilead. Gilead. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it is a very, very strategically important city, which, you know, he'd been Haddad had promised to give back, which he never did. But this is a strategically important city because it's kind of the gateway to the east. And it's a great defense post from, for invaders. And, and you can scout out and you can do all these things. And it's a, it's also on the road of commerce. And so when they lose that, they lose their defense from the Assyrian army, which in a hundred years or so is going to come through and just wipe out the northern kingdom. And so this severely weakens them, and they're going to be severely weakened from the Syrians or Arameans. Um, in the aftermath of Ahab, this is going to be a perpetual problem, and it's because of his wick- wickedness yeah. that he's put the country in a in a bad tactical strategic position against foreign enemies. Yeah. Um, well, and and then we also have this thing that happens immediately after the battle because Ahaziah takes over as the uh, from his father Ahab mm-hmm. uh, takes over as king and tries immediately to like well or very shortly thereafter he tries to strike up a deal with Jehoshaphat to uh, go into business like in in the gold shipment business mm-hmm. or something and Jehoshaphat has the good sense at least in this case to say you know what. I'm not interested. <laughs> let's part ways. I, it just says, but Jehoshaphat was not willing. Yeah. Uh, let's part ways here. Now, but you know, the funny thing is, it's, it is still his Achilles heel because Jehoshaphat's own son mm-hmm. ends up marrying Ahab's or Ahaziah's sister, Ahab and Jezebel's daughter. Mm-hmm. So he joins his royal family to the, to Ahab's royal family. And so this is something I just discovered today for the first time ever. I never realized that Ahab and Jezebel's genetic <laughs> contribution went into the line of Jesus. Really? Yeah. So Ahab and Jezebel, their daughter, will marry the son of Jehoshaphat, mm-hmm. and that son is in the line of Christ. And so, and humanly speaking, in his DNA, you know, the sons are cut off, but the daughter's line continues, and it's that DNA from Ahab and Jezebel finds its way to Jesus. Hmm. And you want to talk about a redemptive family tree story. <laughs> yeah. Know? Like that, I'd never heard that before. And I mean, I had to double check and triple check, and I went around and finally found another, uh, an Old Testament professor from a Baptist seminary that had written a paper on it. And I was like, I've never heard that, but it is correct. Wow. Um, their family tree makes it down to Uzziah, who is listed in Matthew as one of the four forebearers of Jesus, and so the DNA through the through their daughter makes it to Jesus. Mm. <laughs> That's cool. That is cool. It was not this sort of um, protected, purified. It's uh, like Jesus <laughs> redeemed all it. of these stories of mm-hmm. of all of these different. Uh, people from the Old Testament. It's like I mean, yeah. His his family tree is filled with murderers and adulterers, genocidal people who sacrifice their sons and fires. Like his family tree makes our family trees look pretty, pretty good. At least as far as we know. I mean, yeah, has, right, I, I don't know that's that anybody true. has the Old Testament with the Lautenschläger or Kastensmith <laughs> clan history all spelled out. 
That would be pretty interesting to know. So that whole uh, riotous conclusion there to Ahab's life brings us then to 2 Kings and the first chapter in 2 Kings. And it tells us that um, after the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. So who was Moab? So Moab is the nation that's right to the east of the Dead Sea. Mm-hmm. They were they were really despised people because if you go way, way back to the stories of a Lot and Abraham, when Lot is called out of Sodom, he gets, you know, passes out and one of his daughters takes advantage of him and she, they have a son named Moab, which is pretty, pretty, pretty revolting. And so their whole nation, their whole family tree is kind of overshadowed by that kind of shame. But Moab was defeated under the reigns of David and Solomon, and so they kind of paid tribute to Israel um, ever since then. And so now, with the nation being weakened, Moab, which had always been kind of under the dominion of the king, says, you know what, we're done with this, and they rebel. Hmm. So it says that Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria. Now, it doesn't say that he was stumbling around drunk, but – I'm going to read between the lines here and say that Ahaziah was either clumsy or drunk and maybe both. So he has a fall and it says he lay sick. So he sent messengers telling them, go, inquire of, this is me, Baal Zebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. Like, don't check with the prophet of the Lord. Mm-hmm. Don't, you know, don't go ask Baal. Mm-hmm. Am I going to recover from this? And Ekron, which is all the way across the world from where – at least that region from where they're at. And it shows you that Ahaziah is no better than his dad. And yeah. I mean you got to think like in the the first time that we read about a human being that God uses to raise the dead, it's Elijah. Right. It's the first time it happens in the Bible. This guy is there. And what does Ahaziah do? I so hate him and his God that he sends his messengers past Elijah <laughs> to go inquire of Beelzebub, which is a name in the New Testament that's given to Satan. It's a nickname for Satan in the New Testament. And literally, it means Lord of the Flies. Well, hmm. what do you think of when you think of a bunch of flies around yeah, what's usually a there? Corpse, death. A corpse, yeah. death. Yeah. And so I want you to go inquire of this god of death of Ekron, whether or not I recover from this sickness. I mean, just totally wicked. They just cannot break this. Um. So the Lord gets involved. It says, but the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron? (laughs) (laughs) Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. And then the three words you expect in this situation, so Elijah went. Mm-hmm. It's like he's back. He's back. Mr. No Delay. He's like, <laughs> this message for the son of Ahab? I got it, Lord. So the messengers turn around. They go back to the king, and the king says to them, why have you returned? Like, like you're saying, Ekron is some distance away. You're back really fast, guys. How did this happen? And they said to him, there came a man to meet us, and he said to us, go back to the king who sent you and say to him, thus says the Lord, is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. And at this point, I'm thinking right about now, there's going to be that cold chill creeping up Mm -hmm. the back of Ahaziah's spine as he's thinking, I bet I know who that was. (laughs) (laughs) 
And he said to them, What kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? And they answered, He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And Ahaziah says, It is Elijah the Tishbite. <laughs> <laughs> you can just totally see that. Oh, my Tis goodness. Elijah the, the Tishbite. <laughs> you know, once again, this comes to me here. Um, yeah, and the Hebrew, the way that it words, you you pointed this out to me actually before today, that, that the way that it is worded, he wore a garment of hair, is lord of hair. Right. Yeah, like, and the word is literally Baal, and so, like, which is interesting because Baal also can mean lord. And so they're going to see Beelzebub, and they're describing him. He wore, he was a bale of hair. <laughs> Baal's hair yeah. has sent us yeah. to you. <laughs> has yeah. sent us back to you. Yeah, which is interesting. It, it is interesting, and it's uh, it, one of the reasons why. Um, and I don't want to see. It's always there's always a spoiler every time we do one of these. There's always <laughs> a spoiler alert. But um, you know, when we get to Second Kings chapter two, there's something that happens with Elisha. Um, that I think ties back to this whole mm-hmm. thing of Elisha, Elijah as being the Lord of the hair. Yep. Um, Elisha does not have the hair. No. Elisha, not a hairy man. <laughs> this, um, this passage, by the way, at the very end of the Old Testament, there is a line that says that the coming Messiah is not going to happen until Elijah returns. And so, like, if you go to Passover with a Jewish family, they still leave a chair open for Elijah because they don't believe the Messiah has come. And so when you're reading in the beginning of the Gospels, it'll tell you when John the Baptist is in the mother of – in the womb of his mother Elizabeth, when the prophecy comes to her in Zechariah about him, it says he's going to come with the spirit and power of Elijah. His ministry is very similar to Elijah. The things he does, very similar to Elijah. He's out in the wilderness eating locust and honey, and he's weird. But one of the ways that he's described is he wears a garment of camel's hair with a belt of leather around his waist. And Jesus says John the Baptist is the fulfillment of the return of Elijah, not really Elijah, mm-hmm. but he has fulfilled by coming back in the spirit and power of Elijah mm. and preparing the way for the Messiah to come. That's cool. Um, so in our story here, it says, then the king Ahaziah sent to him, Elijah, a captain of 50 men with his 50. He went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of a hill and said to him, O man of God, the king says, come down. A, you know, this was an order. Mm-hmm. This was like the king says, you're, you're coming with me. But Elijah answered the captain of 50, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. And then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. You know, Elijah was a big one for calling down fire from heaven. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> and we're absolutely supposed to think about that. Because what what Elijah's doing is he's confronting this captain and his 50 because in in 1 Kings chapter 18, there was a contest in which all of Israel was supposed to come to Mount Carmel to watch to figure out which God is real. And all the prophets, the 450 prophets of Baal are doing all their stuff, trying to get Baal to call down fire after all. He's the God of thunder and lightning, but they can't do anything. And then Elijah – praise and God rains down fire and all the people say, oh, Yahweh, he is the Lord. We'll serve him. And now Elijah is standing there being like, all right, if I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven. You remember that? Yeah. 
and consume your 50. And sure enough, like they don't say, oh, no, 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 we remember. Please, we repent. <laughs> Fire comes down and consumes them. Yeah. And this is, you know, I where I take this practically is you've got to imagine when we talked about all those widows of the prophets, when we talk about Micaiah and his family and how vicious Ahab has been to people of faith and God has been patiently merciful, allowing his own people to suffer for the sake of extending mercy to the wicked, right? And now here comes a captain and he knows what's coming to Elijah. When he says, oh, man of God, come down. He knows, he knows he's going to take him to be killed. Yeah, absolutely. And so this is one of those stories that makes me think of World War II. This captain, by obeying the orders of the king, knowing full well what he was after, is every bit as guilty as the king. Mm-hmm. And the 50 men who followed the orders of the captain who followed the orders of the king are every bit as guilty as the king himself. And World War II, right after when everybody was on trial for the, the horrific things that were happening in the Holocaust, all the generals, all the officials of the Nazi regime, what did they say? I'm just I following under, orders. Yep. Correct. Yep. I'm under orders. And this is one of those stories where God does not show mercy to the captain or the 50 men because they know what they're doing and they were obligated to disobey the king here right. and they did not. Well, and if it, like you said, you referred back to First Kings 18. The Lord sent fire down in that contest against the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel and didn't hurt anybody with it. He, mm-hmm. he sent down fire that dramatically consumed a sacrifice and the altar and mm-hmm. some rocks and licked up water around it. And then all the people pledged their fealty to the Lord. The Lord, mm-hmm. he is God. The Lord, he is God. And then by the time the next chapter starts, by the time you get in chapter 19, it's like, um, uh, Elijah killed all the prophets of Baal. That's like the only thing that came back from Mount Carmel. <laughs> well, that was a fun. That was a fun show. Now let's go back to worshiping Baal. Yeah, you know. And so the people of Israel basically lied to God. Mm-hmm. Like the Lord, He is God. And by the time they got back to Jezreel, they're like, we can't remember anymore what happened on Mount Carmel. So. Mm-hmm. This was an opportunity for them to have their memory refreshed, but it doesn't work because it says in verse 11, again, the king sent to him another captain of 50 men with his 50. And he answered and said to him, O man of God, and he threw this in in case Elijah didn't get it the first time. This is the king's order. Come down quickly. Yeah, quickly. He adds the quit like now. Yeah, come down now. The king now, right? Verse 12, but Elijah answered them, if I am a man of God. Let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. So again, the Lord is is judging the wicked troops that are following the orders of the wicked king against the man of God and reminding them, I'm the Lord that sends down fire from heaven. In case you forgot about me from Mount Carmel, this is this is something that I do. You know, this is one of those things where it's, it's serious, like, the, you know, these are 102 real people. We talked about this yeah. yesterday. And yet it shows like the Lord's justice does not sleep forever, you mm-hmm. know. And there's part of me that looks at this and goes, man, that's serious. But there's also a part of me that's comforted that God will avenge, you know. Vengeance mm-hmm. belongs to the Lord and he won't put up with this forever. Yeah. Um, and that God defends Elijah, quite frankly. Yeah. I mean, it's like there's a there's a point at which you would you just want to see God defend his people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Against the wicked. But you wonder if Ahab or Jezebel had been cut off before they had their daughter, what is it, Athalia? Mm-hmm. You know, she's in the line of Christ. So maybe he had his purposes in letting them live long enough to have a daughter. I don't know what the timeline looks like, but God always mm-hmm. has his purposes. It's He's never just 
absent. And he's always playing. Yeah, you know, I don't want to say playing the long game because that sounds kind of. But but it's the fact is that God is God is setting in motion things mm-hmm. today and has set in motion things in ages past that will not reach their culmination. That won't reach the part of His plan that it is for you know years to come. I mean, mm-hmm. I, and we won't see them in our lifetime. So that's part of the of what it means to trust in an eternal God mm-hmm. is that God is working his story, his plan for all of, all of time, all of eternity from beginning to end. I was, <clears throat> I was explaining this when we had the essentials class and I was talking about sovereignty. One of the things that, you know, I like to say is, you know, God is the beginning and the end at the same time, you know, like that's the part that we have to understand about God is that he's not the alpha and becomes the omega. He's the alpha and the omega at the same time. Right now, he is mm-hmm. the beginning and he is the end and everything in between. And we're living on that timeline in between. We're in our little moment on that line between the beginning and the end. But God is already on both ends of it. So mm-hmm. we have to at some point say – we can't un- we can't always understand why he does what he does and why he allows what he does. We just have to know that he is a good God and that his plan is good. Ultimate yeah. plan is good and that he will work that plan and we can't thwart it ultimately. Yeah. And he deserves our praise in the meantime, you yes. know. But in in leadership, one of the hardest things, you know, when I was headmaster and I would have to make a decision whether it was an expulsion or a termination of employment or not renewing a contract or something like that, I would have information that I could not share publicly to protect people, right? And so only I had this information, but I'm making a decision based on information that everyone else doesn't know. And they would look at my decision without the full story and they would think that it was hurtful or harmful and they right. would think why in the world is why in the world is Sam making that decision and it was hard for me to do I wanted to say well if you knew here here's the whole picture here's the personnel file here's this or here's whatever happened that warranted this decision I want to prove myself and yet there are things that I couldn't reveal yeah to protect but it hurt when people questioned my character mm-hmm. and i remember thinking my gosh like the lord has to go through that he knows the end he knows all the reasons of why he's making the decision and it is the wisest decision because he's god and he sees the end like you said so you can trust that he's making the wisest decision even if it hurts in the moment but how often do i go why in the world are you doing this god mm-hmm. And and questioning him when he's up there with this infinite wellspring of love and wisdom doing the exact thing that will be best for his glory and for my good. And there's times where we question that. And I'm, I wonder if that grieves him. I imagine it does. Um, and yet he's patient and he presses in and he chases and he loves and he's steadfast. Yeah, that makes me think – because those of us that are not in leadership – we have to learn to trust our leaders. We have to learn to trust our pastors, our leaders, our the people that have to make these hard decisions. And there have been times where decisions have been made by by people I trust. And I've had to just walk away with that and say, you know what? I trust them. I know that they know more about this than I do. And I know what kind of person they are. And I'm going to trust them and trust their character in making that decision. But it, it does make me think of Job. You know, the story of Job from the Old Testament mm-hmm. where you have this this uh, interaction between 
the devil, between Satan and God. You know, Satan comes up and, and has this interaction with God, and as a result of that, God allows Satan to afflict Job mm-hmm. in some pretty significant ways. And, you know, then they come, they, Job, you know, resists the urge to, to blame God or curse God. And so they have a second interaction and, and Satan says, well, you're, you're not letting me touch him physically. Let me at his body and I'll make him curse you. And, and the Lord says, okay. And then Satan is allowed to do that. And Job still refuses to curse God. Mm-hmm. And as the story unfolds, there's there, it's a it's a much longer story. If you've not if you've never read Job, honestly, please go read the book of Job. It is a really fascinating story. But as the story unfolds, Job remains steadfast. <clears throat> he will not succumb to the, his friends or even his wife who comes to him and says, "Just curse God and die, get it over with," you know. Mm-hmm. But in the end, Job has questions. He's got questions for God, and he asks God these questions. And God comes and gives Job an answer, but it's not the answer you think. Because if it was a human, if this was, if a human being wrote <laughs> this book of Job, <laughs> the human being would come put his arm around Job and say, This is what I want you to understand. You had to take one for the team. See, Satan came up, and we had this big back and forth, and I knew you, man. I had faith in you. I had confidence. And he would tell Job everything that had happened, and Job would suddenly feel good about everything that he'd gone through because he would know that that he had taken one for the team and that he had mm-hmm. done – he'd stood up to, to Satan and made God look good and everything else. But that's not what God does. Mm-hmm. God just comes and tells – reminds Job of who he is, of who God is and who Job is. He's like, were you there when I made the world? Were you there when I did any of this stuff? And Job has to, and Job does accept that. And that to me is the, that's the best part. The The story, the story of Job is not that Job bore up under affliction, although that's part of the story, but it's the fact that in the end, what Job trusts about God and what Job most reveres about God is who God is. Mm-hmm. You know, and one of the things I love about that story, maybe we should do a I would, podcast series on I Job. I would love to do a podcast series on Job. But one of the things that I love about that story is Job is clinging to God in the dark. Yes. When he can't see light. And the Lord kind of peels it back and lets us see a little bit to the story and how it ends with the village coming to him and him speaking about the Lord and coming to faith and his wife and his marriage being healed. Where, you know, if she's saying curse God and die at the beginning, like there was healing that needed to happen in her. And, you know, so God does weave some redemptive things through the town, through this one man's suffering. And this town was cursing Job in the middle of his suffering. And yet there's a redemption story at the end. And so who knows how God, and this might not even be true, but who knows how God used Job to redeem Mm. and bring beauty into the lives of those that were really a mess. Um even though Job had done nothing exactly to deserve it. And that's, you know, the Lord admits that. Right. Oh, I can tell you that that Job has been used as an encouragement in my life. <laughs> there have been times where I have where I have felt like you know, God, I want answers. And then I think about and I think about Job. Job wanted answers, and the answers that he got are the same answer that I'm going to get, which is God is going to say to me, "You know who I am, and you know what I'm like." And so that's where you have to – that's where your trust needs to be. Uh, so uh, let's get back to our story here, get to the conclusion of, of what happens because now our king Ahaziah, 
he sends a third group out. Again, the king. He really, versus, he really values his soldiers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just, just send another group out. That'll be fine. I mean, it's like the first two didn't come back. Why? Well, because they're, they're soldier crispy, extra crispy done. <laughs> <clears throat> so verse 13, Gosh. again, the king sent the captain of a third 50 with his 50. But this captain's different. And the third captain of 50 went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and entreated him, O man of God, please let my life and the life of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the two former captains of 50 men with their 50s, but now let my life be precious in your sight. And obviously no commands here. No, he doesn't even say, come with me. <laughs> He's just like, don't kill me. That's like the, you know, let my life be precious in your sight. Um, I, that's really a, you know, a remarkable difference between the second, the first and second and the third captains. Verse 15, then the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king and said to him, this would be Ahaziah the king, thus says the Lord, because you have sent messengers to inquire of Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron, is it because there is no god in Israel to inquire of his word? <laughs> I love that little <laughs> aside, you know, just fill me in here, Ahaziah. <laughs> Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. And so he died, according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. Jehoram became king in his place in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, because Ahaziah had no son. And this goes back to what you and I, what you were saying before, is that the line was cut off. Mm -hmm. That was, the again, the prophecy that Elijah had given to Ahab is, this is it for your line. Mm -hmm. Your line The males are wiped out. The daughter goes on. Yeah. So, and it says, uh, now the rest of the acts of Ahaziah that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? It's it's interesting to me that the New Testament's going to pick this up. And by the way, I love that when he gets done, it's not Elijah who speaks, but the Lord says, all right, wait, wait, before you, before you ask for anything, <laughs> before, you, <laughs> before you make any, if I am a man of God, comments, uh, he, the Lord interjects and says, go down with him. Don't be afraid of him. Yeah. And so like the Lord interjects, he's watching over Elijah. He's given him his protection. Um, and this picks up in the New Testament. We've talked about this in one of our episodes that was on um, racial issues. And when Jesus is coming toward Jerusalem, and so you know what happens to him in Jerusalem, but when he's, he goes through this very same land, he comes into Samaria, um, which is where Ahab and Ahaziah reign. And they go into a town, and they're looking for a place to stay. And so the the apostles go into a town, and they say, "You know what? We're, we're you can't stay here because you're Jewish, and we don't get along. There's racial tension here." And so James and John come out of that town, and what do they say to Jesus? And interestingly, in Samaria, they say, "Do you want us to call down fire?" Like Elijah, this is totally what they're thinking. They're thinking, "Hey, we're at the right spot." <laughs> you know, I'd, I'd kind of like to see that happen. These people just threw us out of their town. Like, let's bring it down. And it says Jesus turned and rebuked them. And I love where this goes. Jesus is on his way to another mountain, mm. and he is going to go up onto Calvary. He's going to be put on a cross. And basically what he's going to say is, if I am the man of God, if I am the son of God, 
let mm. fire fall. On me. He, yeah, on yeah. me. Yeah. Let the fire of judgment, all that, I mean, the, the wrath that was reserved for Ahab's nothing. I mean, this is the sin of the world. This is me and you, Mark. This is our sin on him. And our God is so great. You know, it's like he, here he's defending Elijah, allowing him to call down fire. But the very same God that allows Elijah to call down fire is on a cross saying, let the fire fall on me. So that the wicked ones that are tormenting me, so that the ones who are beneath me, you know, I'm on the cross and they're all around me hurling insults and, you know, cursing me. So that blessing can fall on them. Let the fire, the wrath of God fall on me. Like how good is our God? Mm -hmm. And that's when, you know, we talk about being able to trust him in the dark. No one faced spiritual darkness like Christ on the cross. Nothing like it in all the history. Job could not hold a candle to what Jesus faced on the cross. And yet on the cross in the ultimate darkness, what does Jesus say? And to your hands I commit my spirit. Like, if, if Jesus could do that, being perfectly righteous, having absolutely no reason to be in the situation that he's in, and yet he totally trusts the Father with his life in the middle of all that, like, it's it's not just an example to us, but it shows you the utter goodness of God, that the Son looks at him and says, I'm yours. Mm-hmm. Like, do with me as you will. I trust you. That's ultimate incredible obedience. Um, and so that the later the story is, those very same apostles that were ca- wanting to call down fire in Samaria here after the resurrection, um, when Jesus has ascended, a revival breaks out in Samaria. All these people are coming to faith in Christ, and these apostles, Peter and John, race to Samaria, and they pray for the Spirit of God to fall on the mm-hmm. Samaritans, the fire, you know, the Holy Spirit fire mm-hmm. to fall, and it becomes redemptive, mm-hmm. you know. And the idea is, you know, Elijah, I get it. Like, I get the wanting to call down fire, but what Jesus shows us is if God loves me so much that he would bear the fire for me, then when I pray, my my gut instinct prayer needs to be, Lord, let your, your spirit fire fall. Not judgment fire. My first desire, even for my enemies, is that they be redeemed and made into friends. That's what the gospel does to change the way we live and work in this world. And if nothing changes, and if the oppression and injustice continues, then I'm going to trust you, God, to be the one who meets out justice. I'm not going to take it up. Well, and the difference between a King Ahab and a King Jesus is never oh. more clear than that. Amen. Well, that is a good word, and I think that's the one we will end on. Uh, it's uh, This has been quite a story with the life of King Ahab, and there's more to come in Desiring the Canaan. We have a few more weeks. Uh, some really remarkable stuff with the prophet Elisha is about to come up, and I'm looking forward to that as well. We hope that you've enjoyed your time with us and that uh, this has been profitable for you. Uh, if you'd like to correspond with us, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is outofwater at riovistachurch.com. That's R-I-O, vistachurch.com, where you can also find all the back episodes of the Out of Water podcast at riovistachurch.com slash outofwater. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts, on Spotify, and in our free Rio Vista Church smartphone app, which is available at an app store near you. 
Sam and I will be back next week with more in the Desiring the Kingdom series and the end of Elijah and his uh, his most unusual ascension. We hope that you'll join us then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash out of water.